The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hamelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I'm honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Iris Figueroa, Staff Attorney for Farm Worker Justice, which is a nonprofit organization that seeks to empower migrant and seasonal farm workers to improve their living and working conditions, their immigration status, their health, occupational safety, and access to justice. Welcome, Ms. Figueroa. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, I'm so interested in these issues of immigration and our food system and how we are so dependent on the workers who work to harvest our food, to grow our food, to process, to produce it in all different ways. And oftentimes we are dependent on the immigrants that come to our country that are part of this migrant workforce that do not receive, in my opinion, the respect that they deserve. And as an attorney, I wondered how you came to this work. Yeah, so it was kind of an unexpected path. I am originally from Puerto Rico, so I was always very interested in issues affecting the Latino community and in human rights issues more generally. When I studied law, I focused more on international human rights issues. And then once I started practicing here in the U.S., I was doing direct legal services. And the farm worker community is a community that's really sort of at the intersection of all these broader issues of immigration, of labor rights, of environmental justice, and of access to health. And that's what really got me interested in this work. Mm -hmm. So paint me a picture. What does the average farm worker look like? What is their age? What is their nationality? Where are they coming from? And who needs them? Yeah, so these are all sort of broad generalizations, of course, because there there is some nuance. But we do have some data. We don't have as much data as we would like on some of these things. But there is some data provided by something called the National Agricultural Worker Survey, which is a survey done by the Department of Labor that paints a demographic picture of who farm workers are. So the main takeaway is that the vast majority of them are immigrants about three-quarters, and the majority of of those are from Mexico. About 80% of the workforce is Latino, about 70% are men, about 30% women. And one other important thing to note is that many have been here not just for years, but for decades. So over 90%, according to the NAS, have been in the U.S. for at least five years, Mm. and over half for more than 15 years. So Many of them have families here. They have children here, including U.S. citizen children. Right. Well, I know that I'm very grateful for their hard work. I have seen farm workers in the field. I can't imagine working that hard. It's backbreaking labor oftentimes. And I know in the meat industry, it's brutal work with regard to repetitive injuries. And yet the access to health care even the respect within these agricultural communities falls short of what I would like to see happen. 
we should probably talk about some of the health concerns. Of course, there's pesticide exposure in fields. There is exposure to antibiotic-resistant bacteria if they're working, say, on a hog or a poultry farm. Paint a picture for me about the health care that is either provided or not to this workforce. Yeah, so as you were saying, they work in very difficult conditions for very low pay. So agriculture routinely ranks among the most dangerous occupations in the U.S., but when you see the earnings of farm workers, according to the NAS that I mentioned, their median annual incomes are between fifteen and $17,000 a year. So not surprisingly, approximately a third of farm worker families actually have an annual income below the federal poverty level. Many of them work on something called a piece rate, which means instead of being paid an hourly wage, the amount they earn corresponds to the number of pieces that they pick, and very few of them receive fringe benefits. So farm workers are much less likely, we know, than the general population to access health care, and there's a whole variety of factors for that. One of the main reasons is cost. As I just mentioned, you know, they have very low earnings, and a lot of them are not insured, we have estimates that only about 35% of farm workers have health insurance, especially when it comes to access to specialty care, that might be even more difficult. And then there's the issue of immigration status, which kind of permeates everything else. So one thing I did not mention is approximately half, but we think it could be actually more than that, of farm workers are undocumented. So that also limits some of their access to, to some of the health services or other benefits that might help with their health care. And you mentioned occupational health and safety, and you mentioned pesticides. So that's one very big issue that we work on because obviously farm workers and their families, because they're um, often housed in the area where the fields are, are much more vulnerable to pesticide exposure and to, to its impacts than, than the general population. And then another issue that we're seeing increasingly is heat stress. Right. So especially with climate change, you know, you have workers out in the fields in very high temperatures. We've actually had workers, various workers that died this year, and these are absolutely preventable deaths. Young workers, which if they had the adequate training, the adequate rest breaks, hydration, adequate medical attention, that could have been prevented. And so we actually are working on a national campaign with various other organizations to try to get a federal heat stress standard to make sure that workers are protected. Wow, that's interesting. I was just going to ask you what farm worker justice is doing specifically to try to intervene. So for those of us who are listening and who want to take part and strengthen the efforts of farm worker justice, what would you suggest? Well, I would suggest I'm going to be plugging our website, Great. <laughs> which is www.farmworkerjustice.org, and you can plug into our heat stress campaign. There's various other groups also participating in it, including the United Farm Workers and Public Citizen, and also just advocate on this issue at the local level. We're a national organization, so we, we're trying to move these issues at the federal level, but a lot of times when some of these solutions can, can be put into place at the local level, that's really helpful because then we have models to look for um, to really push that issue at the federal level. And pesticides are another issue that we're working on. Mm -hmm. And so you can get more information on that as well because right now we're trying to make sure that the current Environmental Protection Agency administration doesn't roll back 
some of the worker protections to protect workers from pesticides. Oh, absolutely. I know there has been some research with, of course, we've looked at the Chamaco study, and I'll provide a link to that for our listeners to see just how devastating the effects are on children with regard to reducing IQ or increasing neurological damage simply because their parents and themselves have been exposed to pesticides that I don't know what the recourse is for these kids. I don't know, you know, if a child becomes ill or if a farm worker becomes ill, are there clinics in the agricultural community that can provide those services? Are there protections on the books in terms of policies to protect pregnant women from being exposed? What kind of protections exist right now for vulnerable populations? So. Some of those protections are state-level protections, so some states have better protections on these issues than others. I do want to mention, because you mentioned access to health, that there's a, a network of migrant health centers, something that was Congress passed in the 1960s, something called the Migrant Health Act, so it created a system of federally funded clinics to serve farm workers and their families. So they provide health care to farm workers and their families. They're more commonly referred to as migrant health centers, and we work with them on a lot of health issues. And there's also other organizations such as the migrant clinicians that work on these issues. So that's also something that we have some links to and can provide more information on the particular centers, depending on where people are locally. And in terms of protections, there's two main rules that have to do with protection from pesticides for workers, and these are federal rules. The one's called the Worker Protection Standard, or WPS, and the other is called the Certification of Pesticide Applicators Rule. And the WPS just sets out some guidelines, some standards that have to be followed to ensure worker safety. So that includes proper equipment, proper training, training with content that addresses take-home exposure for workers once they go back home, and then there were some revisions made to those rules very recently under the previous administration, which included, for example, a minimum age of 18 for applying pesticides. So what you were talking about with the effects on, on children. Unfortunately, even though those rules have been implemented, the revised versions, there is still a plan at EPA possibly to roll back some of those new protections, including that minimum age that I mentioned. So that's something that we're really fighting on the federal level right now. And mm -hmm. I also want to mention a, a specific pesticide called chlorpyrifos. Yes. Because this is, you might be familiar with it, this is a, a pesticide that the EPA had actually been set to ban. It's highly toxic, has been linked to neurodevelopmental damage in children. And in spite of the EPA's own data on this, the EPA administrator decided to approve continued use of the pesticide. So we actually are involved in litigation with various other groups to push back against that decision. And the Circuit Court of Appeals in August ordered the EPA to ban chlorpyrifos within 60 days. Now the EPA has now appealed that decision. And so we're still waiting to see what the court's going to do. But that's something we're very actively involved in as well. Do you know who the manufacturer of that particular pesticide is offhand? I know CropLife, I believe, manufactures it. I think there's a couple of, a few others, but yeah. Yeah, I am just appalled that an industry would put a profit ahead of children's health. And I know I've done interviews with the researchers who have looked at chlorpyrifos and the damage that this particular poison has 
on children's brains. And there's just no excuse not to ban this particular product. I guess contacting our senators and representatives in Washington and letting them know how we feel about it might be one step, but also following the research on this particular poison. And I'm imagining that you have that available on your website. Yes, we do. And we also have links to some of our partners who work on some of these issues, like the Migrant Clinicians Network that I mentioned. And I should also mention that there was a bill that was introduced by Senator Udall to ban chlorpyrifos in 2017. So that bill or some version of that bill might be reintroduced. And so that's something that we're supporting as well. Great. Okay. And again, that website is www.farmworkerjustice.org. I'm going to be promoting it too, because it's, it's really a great website to keep up with what is going on. So in my community, what I've been told, and I live in the Midwest, and we have poultry operations, we have hog operations here. And it's my understanding from speaking to some of the workers that Say a a woman is pregnant, uh, she needs to go get some health care just to monitor to have a healthy pregnancy, and the father of the baby is too frightened to go with his wife to the doctor's appointment for fear of being deported. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the whole system and the whole structure of the system that keeps farm workers living in fear. Yes, absolutely. And I think that is such a crucial piece of the story because, like I said before, it really impacts farm workers' ability to speak up for safety issues, for violations of their labor rights, for wage theft, for sexual harassment. It really hinders their ability to have a voice and to get relief just because there's such a strong fear of retaliation which can come in the form of immigration enforcement, not just for themselves, but possibly for their family members or for their coworkers. And so this current context of immigration enforcement, and particularly the increased focus on indiscriminate immigration enforcement and the rise in deportations, have really worsened what was already an untenable situation for farm workers and their families. And it's really exacerbating this vulnerability and this isolation. So as you mentioned, and and we've heard so many stories about this, because of increased immigration enforcement, farm workers and their families are hesitant to leave their homes for sort of routine life events, whether it's medical appointments or errands or community activities. And so there's a really palpable fear in the farm worker community right now and a real reluctance to access some of the services that might be available and that they may very much need and for which they may be eligible. Mm -hmm. We need to take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just tuning in, you are listening to Food Sleuth Radio. My guest is Ms. Iris Figueroa. She is a staff attorney for Farm Worker Justice, which is a nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C., that seeks to empower migrant and seasonal farm workers to improve their living and working conditions, immigration status, health, occupational safety, and access to justice. I want to ask a little bit more about these protections. And we have a population that we are so dependent on. This is the big disconnect for me. We have a population that we're so dependent upon to bring good food to our tables, and yet we treat them with such disdain. If we were to close our borders, who would do the work? How would we restructure, ideally, a process where people could come and do work here, but to be paid fairly 
and to at least get the medical care and protections that they deserve. What are our next steps? So obviously the the border is important, but it's also important to keep in mind that it's not just recent arrivals or people who are crossing now, like I mentioned before. Yes. People who already have been living in these communities and doing this work for years and even decades. So we absolutely believe that the very first priority has to be to ensure that the farm workers who are currently here are given authorization to work in the U.S. in a pathway towards permanent immigration status and are able to be part of the societies that they are quite literally feeding. They should not be limited to accepting undocumented status or the other trend which we're seeing, which is also problematic, which is mere temporary work permits. So there's something called guest worker programs, and the most common one, the one that's used for agriculture, is known as the H-2A program. And I want to mention this because this is sort of a lesser-known aspect of immigration policy, but it's an issue that's really growing and that presents its own set of of challenges and concerns because the way the guest worker program is set up is that the worker's immigration status is in the control of the employer. So in our view, the program is fundamentally flawed because workers are tied to their employers and they're dependent on their employers not just for their employment, but also for their very presence in the U.S. And At the same time, they're non-immigrants with no pathway to immigration status or citizenship, no matter how many years they come back as guest workers. So this also puts workers in a situation of vulnerability. There's a lot of violations that take place during the recruitment as well, including recruitment fees so that workers are already in debt when they arrive. And this program is really growing massively. This past year, there were over 242,000 positions. And so what we're seeing is at the same time that there's a immigration enforcement is being increased, that people are being stripped of the status that they might have, for example, in the case of DACA or TPS, we have this guest worker program growing. And so we're creating this underclass of workers. And that's really not the solution that we need to be looking at. The solution is to give a path to citizenship for the people who do this work. Absolutely. And I want to also bring up another point, which was a real surprise to me. We take for granted today that there are basic labor rights. So if you're going to work overtime, you should be paid overtime. There's a minimum wage. There's a protection for children in the labor market. But farm workers are excluded from those protections. How did that happen? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And there's a history behind that. Many of of the labor protections that, as you say, we take for granted, developed during what's called the New New Deal era or legislation of the early 20th century. And during that period, agriculture was excluded from those protections. And there's various reasons for that, but there's certainly race was one of the components of that because of the people who historically had done agricultural work in this country and continued to do agricultural work in this country, which were people of color and later immigrants. And so farm workers still to this day are excluded from some of those very basic protections. You mentioned overtime. So this is a particularly relevant one for farm workers because especially in peak seasons and depending on the crop and the task, they often can work over 40 hours a week, yet they're not being compensated above their base wage trade for those extra hours. So this lack of overtime also leads to employers having 
workers having extremely long hours and also puts them in a place of vulnerability because it contributes to that economic disadvantage that we talked about at the beginning. So another bill that we have supported that was recently introduced is a bill called the Fairness for Farm Workers Act, which is modeled after legislation that was recently passed in California that grants phases in overtime pay for farm workers. And so we just think it's sort of a basic fairness issue that workers should be paid overtime just like any other worker in any other industry. I also want to note the issue of sexual harassment and assault in agricultural work because that's something that thankfully is getting a lot of attention recently. And many farm worker women continue to endure this behavior, again, for fear of retaliation and what that might mean for themselves and for their community. And so that's another issue that we work on. We're currently developing some trainings for farm worker women on sexual harassment and assault, and we work with various farm worker women organizations that work daily with this issue as well. Yeah. I want to talk about child labor because I have seen news reports that children are in fields with very dangerous tools, say harvesting onions, for example. Are there no child protection laws? So this is another problematic area is in sort of an area where, where there's this agricultural exceptionalism, which is federal child labor protections, where farm worker children are offered less protection than those working in, in other industries. So, for example, for most jobs, the minimum age at, at which a person can work is 16 years old, with very few exceptions. In agriculture, the minimum age is 14 years old, but there's many exceptions on depending on the size of the farm, family-owned farm, etc. So people who are, who are studying this issue believe there's an estimated 400 to 500,000 children working in U.S. agriculture. And so all of these issues that we talked about, for example, pesticides, right, they are impacted in an even more intense way by some of these hazards. And, for example, tobacco, the use of child labor in tobacco fields is another issue that has gotten attention because in addition to all the dangers, they also have dangers of green tobacco sickness or nicotine poisoning. So it's really unbelievable, I think, and and maybe something that people are not aware of, just how many children are being exposed to some of these potential hazards. Right. Yeah, I'm appalled. I know that when I go to the grocery store and I buy anything, I try to think of who handled it before my purchase. So in the case of produce, which of course as a dietitian I recommend that we eat more of, I'm very much aware of the fact that there are individuals who are being exploited. They say there's blood on that bunch of celery or there's blood on those tomatoes because of the risks and the dangers that the farm workers have to go through in order to bring that food to our plate. So I think these are really important issues to for us to pull back the curtain on. We just have a few minutes left, so I want to turn the program over to you. Are there any topics that you want to make sure that we cover that we haven't touched on? So I think we discussed some of the main challenges and the main issues that are really important to farm workers. Immigration, the lack of a path to citizenship and the problematic growth in guest worker programs, the issue of occupational health and safety with pesticides and heat stress, the challenges in accessing health care and the labor rights exclusions. One last thing that I want to mention because it's so crucial, and it's, again, one of those overarching issues, is access to justice. So one of the most effective ways of 
enforcing the protections that are on the books and also advocating for greater protections is for farm workers to have access to justice. And unfortunately, because many federally funded legal aid programs are unable to represent undocumented workers, that really limits farm workers' access to justice and also the economic vulnerability that we talked about before. So I think that having that access as well as having stronger anti-retaliation protections and including the ability to regularize their immigration status if need be would really go a long way to helping to address some of these challenges. How many people do you think are aware of these issues? And, And let's just focus right now beyond the consumer, but let's say how many law schools are you aware of in the country that would introduce potential, you know, these are going to be the future lawyers of America. How many of these individuals are given just a taste of the injustice that's going on in our agricultural communities? I think not enough, although I do think that it's it's a growing issue and an issue that people are increasingly more aware of and more plugged into. And I think many, for example, law schools and other organizations might expose people to this issue through the broader issues that we talked about. So if they're working in immigration issues, they might come across the issues of the farm market community or if they're working in labor issues. But I think it's also really important to be aware of that big picture and how those issues interact with and sometimes exacerbate some of the challenges that farm workers face, which are very unique to that population, the way that those issues come together. Yeah, absolutely. And are there any attorneys that do pro bono work with this group? Yes, there are. And so we are also plugged into farm worker legal services organizations all across the country who do serve farm workers and who do focus on this population. Mm. But the real answers come from our federal policies is what I think, correct? Yes. And I think three ways that people can plug in and people can help to make this population more visible and to think about how we can achieve some of these much-needed solutions. First of all, just use your voice. So whether you're a dietitian or you're a healthcare professional or just somebody in the community who is aware of the contributions of farm workers and immigrants in your community, you can talk from your own experience. You don't have to be an expert and raise up some of the positive contributions and the essential role that farm workers and immigrants play in your local community. Also, expanding your networks locally, so becoming acquainted with the farm worker advocates, migrant health clinics that I mentioned, migrant education programs, and really building that out from the grassroots. And also decision makers, both at the local level, but your federal representatives, to really educate them on these issues and not assume that they understand what that looks like on the ground. And then the last thing that individuals can do, something we didn't talk about as much, but we also work on is corporate social responsibility. And so consumers being empowered and turning focus on the supply chain. So for example, Farm Worker Justice participates in something called EFI, the Equitable Food Initiative, yes. which seeks to improve conditions for farm workers and has a worker empowerment model. And so that label is something that consumers can look to. But there's also other programs, for example, the Milk with Dignity campaign for dairy workers and the Fair Food program. So that's another way that consumers can use the power of the purse to take a stand on these issues. I love that 
Power of the Purse. We're going to end on that note. I will make sure that our listeners have a link to farmworkerjustice.org where they can learn more about these issues and become more involved if they are so moved. But in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hamilgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Iris Figueroa, staff attorney for Farmworker Justice, which is a nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C., that seeks to empower migrant and seasonal farm workers to improve their living and working conditions, immigration status, health, occupational safety, and access to justice. Thank you so much, Ms. Figueroa, for being my guest. Thank you.